0: So hi, I'm here, Laurel Brett from Sea Witch Books, which some of you probably know is the wonderful online bookstore started by my kids. Um, I made my own agents, so I made my kids create a bookstore so I could hawk my wares and the wares of my friends. I have wonderful children who are willing to do that. And Sea Witch is a totally virtual bookstore, and you can order indie books from that, but today. We have John Aaron Sandler, and you can find him on his own website. And when this runs, we will put all the links up for you. And he is a Renaissance man, he's having a store. He has a hilarious Twitter account, which you can find at his name, that is complete with pictures that his mysterious significant other does and dialogues between them. And his Twitter account is a whole performative world in itself. It's like going to a Renaissance fair. So I'm very excited to have an aspiring writer whose work can be found and purchased on Buy Me A Coffee. And he can talk about that and what the world of directly going to your audience and skipping the middleman. I don't know if any of you guys saw the movie begin again, but Kieran Knightley in it says, fuck you, to the record company and decides to promote herself directly and be democratic. So he is the most democratic of souls. But before we get to hear that good stuff, I have some other questions I want to ask him as kind of like formative questions about his writing project. So hi, John. Thanks for coming.
1: Hello, uh, Laurel. It's fun to be on the other side of the seat here. I know we've recently done it—a thing where I interviewed you, so you, you turn around is fair play. So I'm I'm here for all the questions, and thank you for being so upfront uh, with all my questions. You were a fabulous uh, interview.
0: Yes, I don't hold much back, and I'm sure you won't either. <laughs> so my first question to ask you—I word David taught me this word, and I could be getting it wrong. So if everyone's looking it up and I'm wrong, but I think there's this word Paragoria, which rates the arts, which art is at the top of the pyramid. Mm. And many people have decided music is at the top of the pyramid of Paragoria. And yet you were a musician and now you're a writer. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the decisions surrounding that and how you feel about what the two art forms offer because I've noticed that many creative people are very versatile, that there are many writers who paint and singers who paint and musicians who write and that the creative mind is quite adaptable and yet you made a major shift from one art to another. So I think people would be interested in that, especially people who are struggling and maybe haven't quite found the voice in the one they picked already.
1: Well, I think, too, the thing to emphasize with that, yeah, so I'd done a master's in uh, classical music, in uh, classical guitar performance. Before then, I'd done an undergrad in literature, and partly, I just, um, I didn't want to pursue research in literature further, and I didn't have a really good idea about what to do outside of maybe going to school. I'd always played music through my undergrad, and this sort of gave me an opportunity to Uh, get on a stage, have access to really learning the instrument. And I found all that kind of uh, interesting. And I thought maybe I would teach it and, um, you know, be a performer as well, sort of on the side. But I think the actual art form, what I liked about it was that it was uh, purely transportive because you have this relationship in classical music anyway, where you don't necessarily have to compose. You can take someone else's music and study it intently. And really be completely subsumed in it in order to get a good performance out of yourself. And it was this um, combination of reading, which I'd always loved to do, and also then performing, so that the reading had this creative aspect to it that I really liked, and an interpretive aspect which was really immediate. Uh, so I loved all that about music, and I just you know got a, a kick out of the actual art form. I think the the shift was partly I. Had been writing since a very very early age. I think the first thing I wrote was, you know, a 200 page novel when I was in grade five or something. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was it was my my principal gave me uh, gave me leave to write in the to to type in the um, in the hallway of our school every morning. I guess she thought I it was I was really grateful for it. I guess she thought I was bored and asked what I wanted to do. Um, and I still have it up on my bookshelf somewhere. Um, But so I had a, you know, if if you start something that early professionally, you have a bit of an edge. I hadn't started music that early. Music came much later. And I felt I could be a better writer than I could be a musician. Um, And I felt that the other part of it too was I had not found my voice as a musician. I, I felt I loved it, but I sounded a lot like other musicians. And so making that professional shift was a choice about what I thought I could do best. In terms of the art forms, um, I really do love them both. I still love to play, Um, it just don't perform as much. Uh, And so I think that the the shift there was purely professional and the art informs each other. The ability to think in a musical or rhythmic way affects the way I write. And I get a little bit concerned if, I see people who are in one lane and really dedicated just to that one lane, you know, it's like someone who says, I'm going to be a professional hockey player right from the beginning, and doesn't try other sports or doesn't get informed by other things. Uh, Usually, I I hear you make a, a better player if you try lots of different stuff. And I do feel that having engaged in art form that deeply, both affects certain aspects of how I write, but also affects my sense of what it means to have a practice, you know, a practice thing which you learn with performing music. You don't necessarily get it with writing. The idea of how to practice an art form is is was more direct with, with music. So I think that's why the shift happened, and I think that's why it's also valuable to be doing lots of different art forms if you can, even if you settle on one, focus later on more professionally.
0: You, I want to specifically ask you, do you feel that music and writing literature engage different parts of your inner self or it all springs from the same inner spring?
1: That's, a that's yeah, I, I wonder if I'd be the best person to answer the question. It's so subliminal, the feelings, right? You know, you, there's part of you that just wants to do something. I just wanna play music now. I just wanna, I have a, a reaction to music. I, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna have a reaction to reading. Um, So I I want that that, that part is so not thought, it's so not rational, Uh, it just sort of happens that, you know, the post-analysis, I wonder if it's sometimes, you know, trying to make order out of chaos a little bit. I, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: I was gonna say, so you don't engage cognitively with questions like that. That that must be I did decide to become an academic and do research. So my mind <laughs>
1: you, you goes might be better at than way. I would. But I think so, the reason I, I would say I don't know if I engage with I'm i I'm I'm skeptical skeptical about the ability to do it to myself because it's so tied up in the experience I have doing these things that and and it's so all consuming every time you really commit to doing. Uh, an art form you, that you're so lost in it, you're so dis. You know, when I'm really writing, I'm gone for four hours. I'm not even there. I'm in the writing. When I'm uh, in a performance, especially uh, with music, very often I don't remember the performance. I am really always interested in watching a video back because I'm I'm so in the moment that the it's there's it, almost like time goes away. So the, my ability to to analyze it is tough.
0: But it sounds like you are saying that it is the same part of you, the part of you that exists totally in the now.
1: Yeah, yes, that's true. I would I would say that and I would put a caveat that I don't know, I may be an unreliable narrator, but that's how it feels to me for sure.
0: But that's what I heard you say, that yeah. those you described it in a very similar way. So I think that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting for people to understand that it's not the product perhaps, that defines so much as the experience while making the
1: product. I, yes, I, th- I would totally agree with that. Yeah, I do think that the idea of being limited to one art form comes from a from putting a, the professional on top of the creation of the art, but that I think any participation in creating something is coming from the same place, which is the being lost in that thing place being totally lost and committed to making the thing you just can't do half measures and in that in that moment you have that you know i guess they call it a flow state but you just are totally lost in it and so that must be whether it's coming from the same part of the brain or whatever the experience of it i think is uh, is always the same for me
0: so do you feel that your art is very tied up with your personal biography or exists some place a- apart from that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I write all my stories right now are writing about myself. Uh, they're all about an ex- uh, experience I have with a major injury. They're about um, a difficult experience with psychiatry. They're about living in COVID right now. So in many ways, they're also engaged with of the now of, of all of those, uh, all those moments in my life. I think that um, you know what, what's so interesting to me is that the most effective writing I've done in my opinion was not engaging the spectacle of what I thought would be the most dramatic moments that were tied up in my autobiography but were more about getting to the root of things that seemed to be very personal to me in terms of how I felt about what was happening at the time of any of any of the of the stories but were also more universal, you know, feelings of being extremely vulnerable, uh, guilt over alienating your family and then trying, and then relying on them and wanting to, to make amends there. Um, trying to find hope when things are bleak. You know, all of these things that I think a lot of people feel and engage with have shaped the stories that I write more than the purely autobiographical details. So the decisions about what to include or what to talk about in, in stories about my life really come from engaging with those ideas, which I think are very true in describing how I think about my life, but are are often more interesting to me than some of the minor details, which then I just sort of say, well, we're not we're not making anything up, but we're gonna we're not gonna talk about that because it doesn't come down to what I like really think the story is about. Gray
0: or black socks that day.
1: Yes, exactly. Or the socks gray or black. Did my mother and my father talk for twenty minutes in the garden or, you know, did um, you know, did H and I, the mysterious H, my the partner you spoke about, did we uh, did we go and get fries before a Van Gogh exhibit? You know these things because there's an infinite number of them. You could talk about these details forever, but it wouldn't add up to a story. It wouldn't have that shape, as we've talked about in a in a, another time, the shape of the story. And the more I think about you're talking about it, the story needs shape, I agree with that. And for me, it's shaped through these. Uh, these themes that then become almost more important than all of the little autobiographical details, and more dependent on it too.
0: A writer named Dorothy Richardson tried to capture one day in the mind of her protagonist, and it was a five thousand page work. And I'm actually. And I'll, prob- uh, it, actually, and I, and
1: I'll <laughs> bet she didn't get. I bet and she. And I bet she left a whole bunch of stuff out.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Well, there's that movie, Schenectady, Synecdody, Synecdody, New York, um, where he builds a replica, tries to build a replica of the world and it gets bigger than the world he was building because the replica keeps getting more details. That, that, that's a kind of chaos theory fractal problem. We, we, we don't have to go into that. <laughs> I, I wanna ask if there's a sense in which from being a performer if even when you're writing, that there's a performative element to your writing, and people use that pejoratively, but I don't mean it that way, because I think when a narrator tells a story, they are performing for an audience. Um, We, previously, John and I had talked about Don, the difference between écriture writing and parole, which is spoken language, and, are they different for you or are they the same? I know you spend a lot of time actually performing your stories in public. How is it writing them for a page now?
1: Yeah, that's been really interesting because for a long time I, I had that idea of being the writer in a garret and you write alone and you create it and you then you bring it out into the world. And uh, all I can say is I think that's, for me anyway, been totally proven wrong in terms of what I think has made my writing stronger. Um, what the current stories came out of a combination of going to these writers groups in Toronto and then performing them live at these storytelling events. And there's lots of them, or before COVID there were a lot of them around. And then I would take those recordings and the text and I would put it up on my site. But before I did that, I would perform them for a bunch of other people before the main performance. And this was something I used to do with classical music because obviously playing for a thousand high school students You know, a classical guitar with an opera singer is terrifying. So I would just slowly work it up. I would do 10 trusted friends and then 20 people play in a cafe, try to get maybe a hundred people, that kind of stuff, work it up until I was confident that no matter what happened, we would get through the performance and that I could I could deal with nerves. And so I would start, you know, reading my stories for a friend of mine who's an editor or someone who does story editing for something. And then I would they would suggest changes and I would try to make them and see if they worked whatever work I would keep, then I would start reading it for friends and family. And I would not even ask them questions, I would just try to feel if they were getting bored, if they, if somehow I could feel their attention was going. And then I would try to mark down when that happened and I would record myself as I was doing it. And so the the parole, the spoken word, which was coming from an initial written draft was interacting with an audience and I was studying that and then rewriting based on that. And then looking at the writing and seeing, does it still shape up and hold up? And then I would do it in front of the audience for the proper show. and even then sometimes I could feel something's off here and I would just edit on the fly and sometimes a whole paragraph would be gone and then I would have to also edit that in the recording that I'd put up or re-record, put it up on my site because everything on my site you can read or listen to it it'd be read. And what I learned from that was that for me the the writing, the art object, is a way of connecting with the community and that you have a response of readers, but, you know, when they're right there, you can really feel them and that you have some kind of responsibility there, not to give them exactly what they want or what they expect, but something satisfying or something that they leave with that they, they like, or, I mean, you can even challenge them if that's the goal, but it is a very alive relationship and it's not, you know, about the, the words on the page. Words on the page don't mean anything without the community reading it or without the person reading it. Mm-hmm. And uh and that was that maybe shouldn't have been a big aha moment. I probably should have known that before, but I it really changed the way I see I see writing. I see all my writing now, including my social media creations and stuff. It completely changed the way um, I saw it. It wasn't so much about you know me, uh me trying to do what I thought should be done, but it was really trying to take way more cues from a reading audience or, or a live community.
0: So you are, I would say that that is in a very beautiful way, stressing the performative aspects in the awareness that there's always an audience.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You're not writing I, a journal for you to read five years from now. There's which can be
1: good audience. too. I No no aspersions on the journal, you know, It, but yeah, that's ch- changed the, Somehow this way worked a lot better for me than when it was a very private thing. It got rid of a lot of bad habits that I think I had built up reading certain writers and feeling like I had to be a certain kind of person. We've talked about, you know, being a guy and being dominant and being, you know, the smartest person in the room kind of, you know, crap. And it was a very importantly humbling experience to have to be subservient to an audience and then start to resist it in a way that worked for them.
0: Or vulnerable to an
1: audience. Yeah, to go up and really say, they're going to know if I'm hiding something. Or they're going to know if I'm, you know they'll know just by not being that interested. Or they'll know by saying, well, that didn't really add up. And uh, conversely, just laying something out, laying like as if they were my therapist, was also bad because then they'll tune out. So it was this thing where, how do I draw them in? How do I shape the story to make it interesting? How do I stylize it in an effective way? and also be vulnerable in a way that is true and ha- and engages this audience. All these things started to come together in the actual writing from that experience.
0: Well, I once read a writer, this is not mine, somebody else who said that we are making demands on our readers time, we should at least give them a good time.
1: And like you if so-
0: you... If to give us something, we should give them something too.
1: And you so feel that when they've paid $10 to come see you for two hours in a bar, or even for my, you know, for, to see me for 10 or 15 minutes. And I would be in the audience because there'd be six people going up. And if someone had not had, if someone did not respect the audience, you could tell. And I would be pissed off because it was my time, because it was my money. And because it was the sense of, you know, what are we doing here if this is just all about you? <laughs> like That's, I'm here too. Right? Yeah. That's
0: the shower, right? Yeah. Or God forbid, for your lover, they might have to listen to it, even if they don't want to, but um, that's not for an audience, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree.
0: I'm going to come back to this when we talk about your Twitter presence, but I'm going to take a little bit of a detour, if that's okay with you. Yeah, for sure. I, I want to ask you, you mentioned, actually, I think you, what I took from what you said, for what you write about are these universal, very large human experiences that relate to being a body in the world, being a person in a family, being a person in a social network and how vulnerability and history kind of combine. And those are universal themes that almost anyone can relate to. And one of the great strengths of your writing project I want But you also talked about some very traumatic things, like three very traumatic things. Mm. A mental health, questions that arose and a physical injury and COVID. These are very, I would call them hot spots mm. of trauma. Do you think you would be the same writer without that trauma? Or is the trauma a really focusing point that the writing grows out of sort of like a big bang, if you will, for mm. your writing?
1: I think that the, I, I wouldn't say the, the traumatic moments, like I don't really think of, of the moment breaking my knee or even, the, or even the rehab itself or, you know, partly you know, being on medication that I, I definitely shouldn't have been on, a lot of that I don't remember. Um, and I had to cobble together what people uh, had told me in order to write some of the stories, um, parts of it anyway. Uh, and, you know, uh, COVID might be a separate thing but I think that it was the isolation of all of those experiences, the very long term removal from the world that gave me space to think and also forced me to think about what I, what I really valued, what I liked, what would work for me. Because I have to say, being two or three years in a room after four surgeries, doing tons and tons of physio, you know, that's not something I would want for anybody and for me, and and then you know, being stuck in isolated, you know, from, from COVID and a pandemic, I don't think that's what any of us want for any any of us. Um, and so, what I think and it did was, it. what's that?
0: Puppies want it. They want. <laughs> it on the Sorry, edit that. Except the
1: pup. No, I no. Except the puppies. I'm with you. Yes. At least there's somebody who's getting some attention. <laughs> um, but I think what that moment did, in terms, so it's so out of the isolation. I would say. Grew um, a lot of stuff. It grew a different, uh, and probably why I gravitated towards telling stories in a in a communal setting because I didn't want to be alone in a room writing anymore. And it gave me a lot of time to think about, well, what did I actually want to read while I was isolated in in this way? And and why didn't I want to read any of the books that I thought made me super smart? Um, what was I connecting with? You know, I wanted to kind of go online and connect with the community, but was terrified. I couldn't find a kind of you know. Lingua franca with anything that was going on on Twitter, or anything. I didn't know how to do it, um, but that's what I wanted from it. I didn't want to start, go online and argue with a bunch of people. I wanted to find a kind of community because being so isolated was so terrible. So I think if there is a, a trauma, it's this extended periods of isolation. But I am very hesitant to call that, call that traumatic. It's for me, it was a very ambiguous, complicated thing because I did gain something out of it. I did have time to think. I still wouldn't wish it on anybody and yet it had this you know I still feel like years were stolen but what I gained from it I don't think I would have gained from it any other way mm-hmm. and so it's this very complicated feeling which is probably the core of what I'm trying to kind of unravel in all these stories what did it mean to be so isolated what does it mean to reconnect with the world in a different way how is how do you do it was it good or bad what were you like before what does your family mean, that kind of stuff. I I think that's that's sort of the core of it. And these these things cause that to happen.
0: I would say those are probably the central issues of our historical moment, because we are so isolated from each other and yet so connected with each other, both in ways we never have been before. Even in previous pandemics, yes, people died, but they didn't know enough to stay as isolated as we are. So this is kind of something new for the human race, We're all over the world, people are isolating, and all of our museums and theaters and restaurants are all still there, but most of us are not going to them. So it's kind of an empty world, and yet we are all connecting, because we can see somebody in Norway at two in the morning with no difficulty. and. People have come to your soirees from all over the world right. and we've all been present in exactly the same way. And we all sit in front of similar bookshelves and you know, like we see how alike we are, we're all over the world. So I think what you're talking about is very central to what people are gonna be thinking about for a long time. So I think what you're talking about is very important and central to lots of people's experiences how can I deal with the isolation of being human and be connected at the same time and without compromising what makes me me?
1: Yeah, and and I think that it's not meant to be, uh, well, the reading anyway, is not meant to be a dour experience with it because one thing I noticed when I, when I was isolated was that the danger was I lose my sense of humor, that that was a real uh, problem. And that also being on certain kinds of of antipsychotic drugs or antidepressants for me uh, completely got rid of my sense of humor uh, in a way that I, I, looking back on now, I find really disturbing. And so, you know, the stories, I always describe them as like reads funny, sits sad, or, you know, reads um, in in a way that it engages a kind of the absurdity of some of the situations. Um, And that's also in terms of some of the social media stuff I do, or like my soirees, stories and pierogies, there's meant to be this combination of lightness and heaviness, where we're seriously engaging with something, but we're doing it in a way that is socially light, that gives us access to each other, that makes things fun and enough that we can, talk, we can leave the whole situation feeling like in the moment we had a, a good time, but we don't leave feeling like we're still hungry. And it's that combination of, of things that I think are so important and uh and really informs a lot of the way I I make art. I guess that's also why I pursued classical guitar. I felt there was something, you could go all the way down with the ability to read music um, that I felt I I couldn't do if I did other forms.
0: I had a question, but you got so interesting that I started listening to you and I forgot (laughs) my own question. So yes, that did happen. So (laughs) I will see if I can reconstruct for a minute what you were talking about, I love what you were talking about, about lightness and heaviness together. Um, What were some major things I I wanted to know while you were living this isolation and having, you know, two separate issues, the the psychiatric issue and the injury that you had, were you reading memoirs and stories of other people who come up against similar moments in their lives? Like, did you immerse yourself in that kind of narrative?
1: um, Yeah, I didn't read uh, memoirs about people going through. I I found my experience so hard to believe it would end. That reading narratives of people who had gone through it successfully was hard for me. Whereas I didn't find that with mental uh, health stories that I read uh, Bell Jar, for example, I felt that some of those stories were more true to the idea of I'm stuck in an experience, and I will always be stuck in it. I'll always be sort of in the bell jar. Um, It's always, you know, waiting for me, which I felt was more true in that moment when I felt that way. I don't know if I feel that way now. Um, Whereas with the injury, because it can be such a stark recovery, people can just go, you know, it can be a real triumphant narrative. And I did not feel at the time, I could stand a thought of that because it would get in the way of me getting better because so much of physio is failure. So much of trying to get better is getting worse. And the only thing that helped me was actually classical music practice experience, which was the fact that your ear gets better than your hands and you will start putting in a lot of work and you will start to think you're getting worse because you start to hear all your mistakes.
0: That's and really interesting.
1: And that really informed my recovery because as I was getting stronger, I felt I'm, I'm getting worse. And in that moment I recognized, oh no, you're getting better. You're just able to realize it now because you're not on a bunch of painkillers or you've started to walk around. And and so that the, the narratives I was reading never talked about that, which was hard for me.
0: So I'm going to underscore for our listeners something that John just said, just said, because I think it's so important that as we improve, we think we're getting worse because our ability to see our flaws increases and that can be very, very painful. And we should remember that that's what's happening because that will be happening to a lot of writers who suddenly become serious about their craft. And there's a lag between then what they imagine they can do and what they are actually doing because now they wanna be better than they did before. I actually just had that experience of wondering why I wrote so many sentences in the passive voice and was like fuck why did I do this so that is part of the process and I think you said something so profound for anyone who practices an art I'm going to ask you even though you said you weren't sure you were out of it I'm actually going to ask you this and you can say I don't want to answer that because that's not how I feel but I'm going to say how does it feel to be out of the bell jar uh
1: it is um it is a place where you have the privilege of not having to think about it, which is amazing. It's a place where you are not worried sometimes that it's gonna come back. And I would say it's also um, a bit of mourning for the lost time and the damaged relationships. And I've had to think about it that way, that you know it's a process of just you, you're, you're mourning those lost years and those lost people and those lost experiences, and that can go into anger or, And that's okay for a while, but you all eventually has to be something else. And so, you know, being out the fresh air and the space and the world when you are enclosed for so long is shocking and scary. And you have to get used to taking it in bites that are sustainable. And you have to get used to readjusting the possibilities to your life that there are some and be, and, and then take that on. And so it's, it's a it's a lot. It's much much better, right? But it it isn't um, it isn't doesn't feel as safe, even though it probably actually is safer. I mean, you're not uh, you're not as close to self harm or anything as uh, you know might have been on all those drugs. Uh, for me, again, I don't want to suggest this is true universally.
0: No, we understand yeah. that you're talking about your life.
1: Yeah, and but for me, you know, suddenly, I can the moment of you saying there's possibilities in my life. Also comes with the I've lost out on possibilities in my life, and the experience of I'm in a great relationship. I'm writing a book. I'm excited about. I've met some great people. Comes also with I lost all of that before, and I think that's probably true for people who went through lots of different kinds of experiences where they lost any time. Um, and it's just a you you don't have to think about it, which is great. But when you do, you have to come to terms with it, and it's it's I think a lot of like just mourning and. And being okay with it.
0: Well, it might be too soon for you to know this, but do you foresee a time where the morning will be over?
1: Uh, I, I think so. I think, I don't know when that would be, but I do feel parts of it are already gone. You know, you never get things back. I mean, that's true of, of life. Well, and we never,
0: you wouldn't have those years now anyway, no matter what they'd be filled with.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, I think the more you know what's happening, you know the the thing that really keeps it going is the more that i I do now, you know, the more life there is uh, you know the less time there is to think about all that stuff, and the more it is just about I really want to enjoy what's here, and so I, I think that that's been
0: you know so the less main project about what's anyway. here all of these projects that involve social media and Twitter and a store and a collaboration with your wonderful partner and collaborations with a writing community. It's it, the way I would look at it from afar, though I'm characterizing your experience. is like a pebble with ripples and ripples and the waves keep getting bigger and bigger. Mm. Does it feel at all like that to you?
1: Uh, sometimes, and I, I gotta, you know, you always want to make sure you check, you, you check your ego <laughs> and make sure you're not getting too excited. Um, I think that, uh, yeah. So on Twitter, John Aaron Sandler, J O N two A's R O N Sandler, uh, just because there was a really handsome actor named Jonathan Sandler who was on Google. So I, I went, with I have my to go, well,
0: you're handsome too, but I have to go that. <laughs> Yeah, that. You, yeah. You're always like, you can never pass that up.
1: Yeah. He's doing pretty well. Um, on Instagram, it's the same, um, and I do some different types of creations there as well. Uh, this thing that started with my partner, H, who is uh, a little uh, media shy, but she's a beautiful artist, uh, beautiful uh, as a person, and also her art is beautiful, um, has been creating a lot of stuff on her own uh, Twitter channel as well, and we have been working on a bunch of collaborative projects where she illustrates my stories, and I'm, illustri- I'm writing for some of her uh, her art uh, projects, maybe for a kid's book. And we decided to put that into a store, called it John and H, uh, Shopify online store. We've sold a few things already. We're working out some of the, the details, but I think it should be up and running in a couple of weeks, which is very exciting. And then the, and then Twitter has been kind of a miracle. And I think it's, everyone came back from COVID maybe and was online and people who are really really looking for community and a lot of talented people showed up and wanted to make stuff. So there are people painting things and people writing poetry and great writers like you that are willing to come on a show called Stories and Pierogies. Um, so all of these things are kind of happening and it does feel like it's gaining more and more steam. And uh, you know we get for Stories and Pierogies more and more writers want to be a part of it, um, and the Twitter account grows and that kind of stuff. But I think what it meet what the core of it has been is just you know almost a like a salon, like a real group of people who are really talented and committed to the art are are, are, uh, are happening. I'm gonna cut that there because Hoda needs the headphones.
0: That's great.
1: Oh, sorry, hold on. In I could yet.
0: have one more question or if she yeah, needs one, it. Yeah. No, one quick,
1: one quick, we got about four minutes. Yeah. I want okay, to make sure here's she
0: my me. four minute question. Okay. Where, where would you attribute um the skill you have in creating a salon coming from because I think many people would want to do that but it's a very difficult thing to do it's almost like we're in 18th century France and you're Madame de Stael how would you where where did that come from
1: I think um yeah again like your first question I you know I may not be the I'm so inside of it I one thing I will say is true and it's with everything I, I do I do think of it as I care less about the numbers. They help with algorithms and stuff. I care less about initially getting tons and tons of eyes on what I'm doing. Obviously, I would love that. I mean, you know that. But what I really have cared about every decision I've made on um, social media has been how deeply does it engage a community that I'd want to spend time with that cares about the same kind of artistic things or or literature that I care about, or is uh, you know up to play, you know, it's sort of like, some of it's a little bit like live theater. Some of it is a bit about like, feels like surrealist games. Some of it is real discussions about books, you know, all of that stuff to me is about creating this community being less isolated and really governs all of my choices there, which means it's uh, it's less um, less sort of nakedly promotional um, and things are consistent long-term. I mean, we're doing something called, I do called the Tweet Book Club, and uh, where I, I read uh, an author's book and I tweet eat one chapter every day for 30 days. And what that means is there is a commitment to the community that's there that this is gonna be a consistent thing. The one thing I would say about that approach is it's an enormous amount of work. So I really am sympathetic to anybody who doesn't have the time to do that. Um, but that's definitely been how, I've been how I've been thinking about it.
0: Well, I'm gonna give myself the last word and say, what I heard you say is, I really can't explain it. I'm just very talented. Not that you're arrogant. I'm not attributing that you would ever say those words. That's my takeaway from what you just said. I have a combination of playfulness, surrealism, seriousness, um, a performer's instinct, a background, and somehow it all came together so that I was able to create a salon that attracted other people and other people really wanna come to. And I wanna go to it and I encourage anyone who's listening that John's Salon is the most fun place in the world. And the people who come are incredible and they live in all different countries and everybody is so sincere that it's a place to really grow it's not like a regular salon where everyone's jockeying for position. It's a very democratic, egalitarian space. John, I want to thank you so much for being here for Sea Witch Books. Uh, What you guys didn't see is the incredible lasagna that the mysterious age made, I think, and it looked so good. I was so jealous that, that the virtual framework was annoying in only that one way. Otherwise, I felt like we were together in the same room. So thank you very much for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Laurel. I'm going to take the compliment. I'm practicing taking compliments. And if I look like I am rushing off, it's because I literally have to give these headphones. (laughs) I'm rushing off to give them to the mysterious H. And uh, this was fantastic. Thank you for having me so much.
0: You're welcome. Bye. Thanks for coming.